Listener Production. For me, at about eight years old, it was all around this fear that I might have AIDS or that, you know, I'd have it and then I'd give it to someone else. It was all completely illogical, but it just didn't matter once that it took hold. What you heard there are the type of thought spirals that derailed Penny Moody's life and stole her joy. They began at just six years old, but it wasn't until she was 31 that she finally got a diagnosis of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. In this interview, she explains why the stereotypes of OCD, like hand washing and checking door locks, made her struggle harder and made it last longer. You'll also find out how the exposure therapy she eventually got actually worked. Such an interesting interview. That is our briefing. First, here are today's headlines. Hello, Katrina Blowers here with you. It is Thursday, the 30th of November. Well, there's a big drama over a Palestinian protest at the Sydney Theatre Company. So they've issued a second and more formal apology after three actors wore Palestinian kefirs. They're also known as scarves during the curtain call on its opening night performance of The Seagull on Saturday night. So, Tom, there was an apology on Monday, but then the pressure went up again after a long-standing Jewish board member resigned over the incident. Yeah, and then yesterday, the STC, Sydney Theatre Company, published a statement to its website, uh, another um, apology saying they didn't know the actors planned to do this and they're sorry for the hurt that it caused um, to their community. And then along with that apology, the show did not go onto the stage last night, but is expected to resume tonight. The actors involved included Harry Greenwood, who's the son of Hugo Weaving, who um, also has a prominent role at the STC, along with two other actors. And uh, yeah, I was actually there for it, Katrina, on Saturday night. So I saw the show, saw the curtain call, noticed that three of the actors were wearing the scarves and thought, okay, that's a fairly strong statement. And then in the foyer, I noticed that Harry Greenwood was cruising around chatting to people and still wearing the scarf. Um, look, I didn't think too much about it, but, you know, I, I'm not from a, a Jewish background and, and I haven't been directly affected by the violence there. And um, what we've heard since from people who are big supporters of the Sydney Theatre Company from a Jewish background, that that felt like a tacit support of Hamas, the people that killed and kidnapped innocent people in Israel, and that's been extremely hurtful for them. So that's put the STC in and the other actors in this show in a very difficult position. Well, for the show to not even go ahead last night, I mean, that is a big call, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And this was really the, the headline about the show coming back on stage. Like when I was going on Saturday night, the big deal was it's Sigrid Thornton's return to the stage you know, much loved Australian TV and film actor and she's a great stage actor too. And she, her performance was hilarious and really good. But it's all become about this and we're just seeing this, um, the division over the, the conflict in Gaza play out in so many facets of, of societies so far away from that conflict. Yeah, and speaking of the conflict, um, an update on the ceasefire. So another hostage exchange took place on Tuesday night, resulting in the release of 12 hostages, uh, 10 Israelis, two Thai nationals, and then 30 Palestinian detainees. There have been calls and reports for the truce to be extended for another two days, which would take it from the original four-day ceasefire to eight days. So this is good news, I think, Katrina. 
Yeah, I I really hope so. Um, We're also looking into reports that have come out overnight. The armed wing of Hamas says that a 10-month-old Israeli baby, his four-year-old brother and their mother, who were being held hostage, were killed during the Israeli bombardment of the Gaza Strip. Uh, Israel hasn't been able to verify the claim, but says the security of the hostages on the Gaza Strip is the responsibility of Hamas. We have some good news on inflation and hopefully on interest rates. So yesterday, the new October data showed the annual inflation figure had dropped from 5.6 down to 4.9. This was almost double the expected drop by economists, which means that despite the tough talk from the Reserve Bank, there's almost no chance of a pre-Christmas December rate hike, fingers crossed. Here's AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver. There's no smoking gun here to justify another rate hike at this point. We also got some softer retail sales figures and we're also starting to see early signs that the housing markets in Sydney and Melbourne are starting to cool again. So, Tom, I guess looking at this, I initially got excited, but then I thought "Mm, it's for October and those Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales Mm. aren't included in that data. Um, I don't know about in uh, Sydney where you live, but certainly up here in Queensland, there were queues outside stores and people were spending up a storm. Yeah, it did, it did seem like a pretty strong Black Friday um, sort of period there. It's now like basically a whole Black week or more. Um, but I think a lot of people do their spending there instead of closer to Christmas now. So that might wash out in the Christmas figures. And the, it's the quarterly data on inflation that really matters. So this is definitely very heartening, but we'll get the, the sort of December quarter figure in January um, before the Reserve Bank uh, meet in February. So, yeah, it's it's looking good, though. Um, great to see it come down. Um, speaking of the Reserve Bank, um, Michelle Bullock, the new governor, I think she's starting to lose some fans. So, you know, she was kind of the clean skin coming after Philip Lowe, had the drama with the bad guidance that, um, you know, made so many people angry. So she spoke at a conference in Hong Kong earlier this week, and... <laughs> She's been accused of being tone deaf and out of touch for the language she used. Um, Here's what she said that's annoyed people. She said that the um, record number of interest rate rises has created a lot of political noise and a lot of noise from the general public. And then she went on to say, but despite that noise, households and businesses in Australia are actually in a pretty good position. Now, people don't want their extreme financial stress described as noise. Look, and I think if you look at the overall figures, yeah, you could say that people are still ahead on their mortgages overall, that they still have savings in the bank overall. But these are the boomers. These, This is not mm. everyone. So mm. it really is becoming about the haves and the have-nots. And younger people who, you know, have the most left on their mortgages are the ones being affected most brutally and don't have the savings and have the most debt. Yes, this this so-called savings buffer, yeah, sure, on, on aggregate, as you say, the total is, is big. But when you break that down across the different... Um, age groups and, and different segments of Australian society, that's not the case. And I also think, you know, they also quote the figures of distress mortgagees from the banks. I don't reckon people are being that honest with their banks if they're doing it tough because they'd be worried about losing their mortgages. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm stretching out beyond the data there, but my, my concern is that they don't really reflect the true amount of pain. 
All right, that's it for the headlines. In just a second, our briefing on OCD. Over half a million Australians live with obsessive compulsive disorder. And most of us only understand it via the visible behaviours, but it actually begins with the obsessive thoughts before it gets to those compulsive behaviours. And that point is really important to truly understanding it and then treating it. Penny Moody is in her 30s now, which means she can finally piece together just how much OCD has affected her life. She's written a book called The Joy Thief. Penny, thank you for joining us on The Briefing. Thanks for having me, Tom. So you've been on a massive journey with your OCD. You write in the book that these obsessive thoughts started to plague you from six years old. And for so many years, you you couldn't talk about it with anyone. You finally get a diagnosis at 31. And then you go to therapy and then group therapy. And now here you are sharing these, these thoughts with the whole world through a book. How are you feeling about that right now? Oh, gosh. Such a mixture of emotions. I think partly mortified, partly relieved. I think the whole experience of writing the book was quite cathartic in a way. Just kind of happy to to have it out there now, I think. It's it's such a mixture. Like about, you know, 10 years ago, if someone had said to me, you're going to write a book about your experience, all your deepest, darkest thoughts, I like no way I would have been absolutely terrified. Yeah, I can imagine. It's sort of like extreme exposure therapy right now. (laughs) I've gone hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sensing that reflects that you're in a positive place with understanding it and dealing with it, although you talk about relapses and the ongoing struggles. So I can imagine it's still really sensitive. Let's explain for everyone listening how this pattern of obsessive compulsive behaviors works for you. You open up early in the story about being a six-year-old girl, constantly having these intrusive thoughts that you had AIDS. So using that example, tell us how that would come into your mind and then plague you. So OCD usually consists of the obsessive thoughts, which is some sort of kind of fear or or sensation or urge or something that, that scares you so much that you develop these behavior patterns to try to, to alleviate the anxiety. And for me, at about eight years old, it was all around this fear that I might have AIDS or that, you know, I'd have it and then I'd give it to someone else. It was all completely illogical, but it just didn't matter once that it took hold. So that was the intrusive thought. The behaviours, I guess, that I started to develop, they weren't very obvious, which is why it was so hard for anyone to know. A lot of it was around going to my mum and asking her multiple times a day, if there's any possibility I could have AIDS and going over different scenarios and then she'd sort of reassure me and I'd be okay for a little bit, but then it would just come back and it would start again and I'd go to her again. And I mean, some of it was also around, you know, washing my hands because, you know, I I had so little concept of how you could actually get AIDS or really worrying about like sitting on a toilet seat if there was any blood, you know, would I have a cut on me? Could Could it get into my bloodstream? They weren't overt compulsions um, through, through a lot of my life. They were, they were a lot of the time they were kind of in my mind, which is why it was really, really difficult for me um, and for others to recognize that it could be OCD. 
Yeah, and I think that's one of the big contributions of your story is that it doesn't fit the stereotype of what most people think of with OCD, which is often more physical behaviors. So tell us more about the type of OCD you had and how, I guess, the gap between that and what you and most people know about OCD made it harder to recognize. Yeah, I mean, I grew up watching, you know, TV shows, movies, or reading books where the characters who might have OCD are quite one-dimensional. Like they were, they would maybe be washing their hands a lot, which definitely can happen with OCD. But they really just focused on repetitive behaviours um, that were very physical and very overt. So when we're just seeing, you know, in popular culture, just the the behaviours like washing your hands or ordering things. We don't really get a full understanding of what OCD and at the core of OCD, it's this real fear of uncertainty. So it's having some kind of thought that might really scare you and then having this really what one psychologist called catastrophic misinterpretation of that thought and then thinking maybe I am this person, maybe I am dangerous, maybe I am sick. How can I know for certain? And what I've learned is that we can't know anything for certain. We really can't. We can feel certain about things, but we can't know things for certain. And that can drive you crazy with OCD. And that's really at the core of what OCD is. Tell us more about how much this actually impacted you because someone who hasn't read the book or doesn't know that much about OCD and is learning right now, it might sound like, okay, well, you you thought you had AIDS, you get dragged into these dark thoughts, it would take over your mind uh, and that would recur. But it it was really heavy for you. And I think one of the points of your story that illustrated it most poignantly was when you set off on a year overseas and flew back to Melbourne within a few days. Yeah, no, look, it really did impact me. Um, oh gosh, just for so long. And, you know, I think when you have OCD, you can be stuck in these thoughts and in these behavior loops for hours and hours a day. You know, I, I called it the joy thief because it really did feel like all kind of joy or kind of happiness was sucked from my life because when you're having these thoughts so continuously, you really start to believe them and you start to think, maybe I am dangerous. Maybe I am this awful person. And then you kind of withdraw a little bit. You withdraw from others, withdraw from doing things that might make you happy because you really don't feel like you deserve it it's really tough thing. And you start to feel like you're going insane. And when you don't know what it is, you're just fighting this battle blindly. It's really tough. But like you mentioned, yeah, I did, you know, I I wanted to go overseas. I think I was trying to really outrun my thoughts because I wasn't getting the right treatment. And of course that didn't work. They came with me and it was too much for me. I had a a massive panic attack and, and I came home. So it wasn't until I really got the right treatment that I was able to start shedding all that shame, I guess. So a big breakthrough for you was getting a diagnosis at the age of 31. So, you know, you'd already progressed so far in your life, you know, heading towards partner, having children, and finally you get this validating diagnosis. And then just as importantly, the treatment. And that's a really interesting part of your story is explaining how this exposure and response prevention treatment works. So you talk about this hierarchy of fears and you start by conquering the sort of lower order fears. Tell us what that involves because you you have to face them and basically 
resist the urge to find certainty and reassurance. Yeah, exactly. So I'd only heard about exposure and response prevention therapy, you know, a couple of months before I finally found the psychologist that would officially diagnose me. And it seemed absolutely terrifying to me. You know, I'd spent 23 years trying to really like block out my fears or outrun them or trying desperately to tell myself, no, I'm not this or, you know, and ERP was doing the opposite. You're running straight towards the fears. But more so than that, like you said, Tom, it's it's not just exposing yourself to something that might bring up anxiety. It's then trying not to carry out the compulsion because we know now that compulsions very much fuel the obsessions. So the more you carry out the compulsions, the quicker the obsessions will come back. So for me, you know, at the beginning, and I mentioned the book was starting a loop tape. So it was talking into my phone, into, you know, audio record and just saying things that made me sort of quite anxious and saying, maybe I am this, maybe this will happen. I don't know for certain. And then it's listening to that. I think at one stage it was like 20 times a day. And the idea is that after a while you sort of experience habituation. So your anxiety does lessen over time if you don't carry out the compulsion. But it's it's, it can be a really tough thing to do and, and people really need to make sure that they're doing it with someone who has experience in, in ERP. Mm. So with that, listening to yourself on tape, if you're comfortable going with the example used in the book, you're worried about being a lesbian. And so instead of the compulsion previously was to seek reassurance that you, you weren't, whereas listening to yourself say it on tape, tell us how that, that worked and how you trained yourself to respond and and sit with that uncertainty? It was exactly that. It was saying this and I would do this in my psychologist's um, office and, you know, at the start it was just seemed, I mean, for any of the exposures I was, do, you know, you're doing with someone else there, it seems kind of a bit mortifying. But, you know, I'd, I'd talk into my phone and be like, well, because the underlying fear was that I'd have to leave my family. Um, it wasn't, you know, that I thought it was bad to be gay or it was anything like that. It was just like, I don't know who I am. And maybe if this is true, I'll have to leave my partner and my family. And so I'd have to say that. I'd have to say, you know what? I don't really know for sure. Maybe I could be gay. Maybe I will pack up my bags and leave my husband. But maybe I won't. Maybe I'll stay. I, I just don't know. I can't really know for sure. And I'd sort of just be saying these things and then I'd be listening back to it. And when I say it now or if I hear it now, it doesn't bring up any any kind of anxiety for me. But at the time it did. It really did. And I'd be on the train listening to it on the way to work and I'd be at home cooking dinner with my earphones listening to it. Like it seems like such a bizarre treatment, but it it really can work and it really did work for me and I know it does work for others too. That was Penny Moody, who's bravely shared her story in her book called The Joy Thief and it was such an interesting read and I think obviously it's helpful for anyone who might have OCD or anyone who has a loved one with OCD and I think it helps anyone really because a lot of us experience some of those thought patterns and Understanding OCD better, understanding it beyond those stereotypical external behaviours is a huge benefit to a lot of people, but obviously especially those with OCD. 